Hello, I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives in November 2017. And thank you. point allow whatever you've been holding in awareness to be released you don't have to push it out of awareness by any means just no longer feel the intention to keep something that we've worked with in the front of your awareness and instead I'd like you to replace that with an image, just a static image of an event that happened in this past year that really sucked. <laughs> Something that was painful, disappointing, not so much on a global scale, but just on a personal level. A loss a breakdown in a relationship or a friendship, a setback. Whatever comes to mind, don't judge it. Just allow the right hemisphere, the emotional mind, to bring up an image that you associate with disappointment in the last year and just hold it there and just ask yourself, how did this feel? Don't retell the story, just hold the image and ask yourself, how did it feel? Just connect with that emotional, ever so important emotional life that we so often don't check in with. Just find that feeling of sadness or disappointment or anger and just allow yourself to connect with whatever needs to be felt, especially not so much a thought, but a feeling in the body. And now letting that image dissipate, and then bringing to mind a new image Without any thought, just allow whatever image arises associated with joy in the last year. Something that brought you a sense of uplift. Something that made you excited or made you feel buoyant or easeful or joyous a person, a new connection, an accomplishment, a goal, something you created. And just connect with the feelings associated with this. Let that image dissipate and just reflect for a moment 
um, what brings you joy and what brings you distress, disappointment, letting the heart, not the head, tell us what is most important for us, what we need to prioritize. This time of year, it's, of course, tempting not only to reflect back, as we just did on the previous year, and to try to gain a sense of what was important, what uh, a sense of uh, what 2017 meant, and how from that reflection, directions that we might want to reprioritize, address. So, setting intentions, in other words, is the order of the day. And um, no group of 20th century century thinkers had more to say about setting intentions than the good old existentialists. (laughs) Boy, they were a fun lot. (laughs) So, after uh, Nietzsche pronounced the death of God, and he was pretty much the... uh, you could say the forerunner, if not the uh, the first major thinker in existentialist thought. Uh, he re- began that process of removing the idea that what our intentions and our goals and our purpose should be was established for us by some kind of... Uh, higher power, or God, or that there is some pre-established meaning. And of course, Sartre came around some 50 years later and noted that existence precedes essence. In other words, what that means is that we're all born, or as he said, thrown into the world without having any purpose for it. We exist, but there is no reason other than two people fucked nine months before (laughs) we popped out. (coughs) But that's hardly a purpose. (laughs) Well, for some of us it is. (laughs) Probably those who live their lives for Tinder. Uh, But... uh, So the existentialists argued that there was inauthentic and authentic lives and that to find our purpose, we had to let go of the idea that it was pre-existing or something that we would uncover. We actually had to make, create 
our purpose. It's not like there's a purpose, your life purpose is waiting for you under some tree where somebody buried it and you just have to mm. dig it up or you have to somehow uh, meditate really, really hard and the answer will pop up. It's actually your purpose is defined by your actions, the choices you make, the ways you live your life, the behaviors that we fall back on. So they're inauthentic and authentic lives. The inauthentic ones uh, they maintained, and Buddha certainly, who was a forerunner of existentialist thought, as we'll see, certainly agreed. They argued against conformism, simply following what other people define as worthy goals, worthy projects, things that we should... uh, chase after the good career, the nice apartment, the great reputation, financial security. None of these things are in and of themselves bad. None of us will throw away a nice apartment if it was offered to us. If you would, you're not a New Yorker, that's for sure. (laughs) But even though those things are fine in of themselves, if we make them our higher purpose, our goal, then we will find ourselves deeply disappointed in life because none of those things actually mean anything to the core regions of the brain that determine... Happiness, peace of mind, joy. Joy, peace of mind, ease in life, a feeling of well-being does not derive from uh, accomplishing anything that gets you a lot of rewards from people. Of course, if you accomplish a long-term goal that has meaning to you, that can bring about a sense of pleasure and accomplishment, but doing it for recognition will not. Recognition, short-term pleasures, accumulating goods, all of them are associated with dopamine, which gives you a boost that lasts all of about a half an hour. And then the shoes we buy, or in my case, the hoodies. And the glasses, I like glasses. (laughs) I need them to see. Uh, But the joy that we might feel with the swipe of the credit card fades so quickly, and then it's replaced by cortisol, which places us on what's called a hedonic treadmill, where we need to accumulate and chase after and crave more and more to get less and increasingly less joy, because... The more we try to accumulate happiness, peace of mind, ease, the shorter the dopamine rewards and the sooner the cortisol and stress appears. As the Buddha said in the Atadanda Sutta, when we live our lives by simply trying to accumulate what feels good, we live like fish chasing after food and ever-dwindling puddles of water. Kind of a negative metaphor, but we'll go with it. So, none other than uh, 
great Abraham Maslow, a very important existentialist psychologist in the 20th century, answered what an authentic life by what he called the hierarchy of needs. He placed at the very bottom uh, the thing we have to meet first, which is the very necessities of survival, food, shelter, clothing, uh, anything that we need simply to survive. And then above that, in the next rung up, was the requirement to have healthy emotional connections with people that are authentic friendships. And I'll talk about what that means in a moment. And then we need to have the self-esteem associated with having achieved a long-term goal. And finally, at the very top of the pyramid was what he called self-actualization, which is associated with expressing our true core feelings, our emotional lives, creating something and embracing life with a sense of wonder. Maslow said when we've truly self-actualized, we are engaged in life in a way that appreciates it as it presents itself with awe and wonder. He said that we remove the ego boundaries which makes us suspicious of others and allows us to open and disclose with people who would be safe rather than to keep with us those ongoing suspicions and paranoia that maybe are the result of earlier painful periods in our life. He also spoke of having a higher mission or a task which betters the lives of other people around us. In some way, we know this to be absolutely grounded. Contemporary neuroscience, such as the work of Matthew Lieberman, shows that the, there's a very core a circuit that runs from the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, to the orbital frontal, which creates emotional pain when we feel that our lives are not meaningful for others, that we're poorly connected to the tribes that we belong to, that we're of little benefit in other people's happiness. And we do create a great sense of emotional reward when we feel connected to other people, not just in the authentic way, that means we can express whatever emotions we're feeling without guardedness, without feeling the need to conceal our sorrow or disappointment, but also that connectedness that comes from being of service or help or of some way benefiting others through our work and our endeavor. When we do that, we are rewarded. This is the very foundation of what the Buddha called karma, harmless acts, behaviors that connect us well, make us feel good in the future, rewards us with serotonin and oxytocin, acts that focus on isolation and accumulating and uh, grabbing and hoarding make us feel disconnected. So, the Buddha's list of what is an authentic life uh, was pretty similar to the existentialists. The first, he said, was the requisites to attain food and shelter and clothing and medicine. The second was Kalyanamita, which was to connect with people that are secure, 
accepting, he said, people that give you what is hard to give, their attention, people who won't desert you when you are struggling, people who are uh, compassionate when we're uh, in distress, and people who appreciate us when we've accomplished something that's meaningful to us. This endeavor requires a lot of effort. Of course, third, the Buddha talked about the importance of right livelihood, which means at its very base that we don't engage in work that harms other beings. But furthermore, beyond that, it means engaging in work that is a benefit, or at least some volunteerism or some activity that makes us feel that we're benefiting the world around us. Four would be the Buddha's encouragement that we find practices that both help us find and develop tranquility and calmness, and also practices such as mindfulness that help us connect with the buried emotional content that we so often don't pay attention to. So both practices that are allowing us to achieve ease, and these are associated with concentration meditations, and practices that allow us to connect with all of those buried, wounded emotions that we have suppressed and wreak havoc in our lives unless we learn how to create a safe container for them. So that's the core of the Dharma's list. I would add to that a fifth, which is the need to integrate the mind, both the emotional and the cognitive mind, the right and left hemispheres, the head and the heart, by creativity, by expressing our experience, our lives, what is meaningful to us in any way that allows us to be both intuitive and also uh, inspired something that communicates without language all those feelings that have been uh, shoved in the background during our journeys. So, the key to all this requires that we put aside or relinquish chasing after short-term pleasures that are found on Amazon, Facebook, and Tinder, and Grinder, and <laughs> wherever all the, the things that keep us believing that there's something missing from our lives, that we are incomplete, which is, of course, a fundamental lie. A lie. If you are breathing, if you are alive, you are complete. There is nothing missing from you. To have a mind at its heart, that a mind that separates us as human beings, that gives us free will, is the fact that we can override short-term pleasures and choose something that is in our long-term best interests, that makes us feel good in the long term. The Buddha said that is the difference between the wise and the foolish. That ability to hold long-term intentions that don't feel good necessarily in the short term. Nobody's ever 
sat down and meditated for the first time and said, oh, this is great. <laughs> if they did, they weren't meditating. <laughs> Nobody ever took their first yoga class and said, hooray, or if they did, they were, certainly weren't me. I hated it. I've been doing it for, oh, God, now literally over 20 years, and I'm just at the cusp of moving from self-loathing into acceptance. <laughs> um, so what is good for us often sucks in the short term. To go through and develop any skill requires going through the I suck at this phase, which can last for months, if not years. I have, I live with, I should say, I don't have them. I live with three cats. <laughs> and at every moment in time, I know exactly what their intentions are, and it's always food or warmth. <laughs> It's never a mystery, but with human beings, we can actually hold intentions that are essentially overriding the immediate stimuli, which is everywhere around us, the sugary treats, the short-term feel-good pleasures associated with purchasing and, and uh, fly-by-night connections, and we can actually aim for something that will make us feel good for the long term. So that's a sense of, besides what you did in your reflection, I think those uh, are a good sense of where we should set intentions. Again, first, meeting the sheer requirements of survival, the shelter, the food, the medicine that we need, the clothing to stay warm in this god-awful weather. The connection with other people is absolutely vital, and for many of us, that should be our core intention. If we do not have what uh, Robin Dunbar, the great evolutionary psychologist, says is the five core friends that we can turn to whenever we have any emotionally distressing event in our life, if we don't have those five friendships available, then that should be at the very foundation of, or the very core of setting intentions. And then on to the accomplishments that make us feel good about ourselves regardless of any reward or recognition, and then self-actualization through creativity and self-soothing strategies such as meditation and yoga, exercise, and all the other things that are task positive, gardening, art, and so forth. So how do we maintain intentions? Well, Buddha first said, reflect on the long-term results. And that's easier said than done, but essentially that means play the tape forward. Will the donut really make me feel good tomorrow and the day after? Or will the fact that I forego it and did something else make me feel good? Reflecting on the actions that happened in the last five years that we feel good about and ask ourselves, 
Is the choice I'm about to make in any way in line with what I already know has made me feel, makes me feel good about myself, makes me feel rewarded? Another important reflection is being towards death. That's a happy one, isn't it? <laughs> but it's in fact a looming finality of life and it's unknowing conclusion or unknowable conclusion that creates really the absolute against which all of our choices have any meaning. If life went on unending, none of our actions or choices would have any meaning at all because we'd simply make more and more and more and there'd be no resonance, there'd be no meaning to it. But the fact is we all die and every choice we make has to be weighed against that finality. And that finality, the Buddha said, not only gives a sense of, is this really something that's worthwhile? The amount of effort I need to put into this, does it, and the dwindling amount of time that I have, is it worthwhile? But also, it creates a sense of urgency. Urgency to put aside chasing after financial security, which, if you haven't gotten the memo, in 21st century capitalism, at least our brand of it, doesn't exist. Capitalism, as well, keeps us addicted to the short-term pleasures. That's all it promotes. In fact, when capitalism started, it first imported addictive substances, rum and tobacco, even opium, as a way to disconnect and to keep us working rather than to encourage any form of deep social communal life. There's ways to keep death in mind to make our choices authentic. There's, in Buddhism, the year-to-live practice where we actually live as if we only have a year left and we make the amends and the connections, and we do the bucket lists and all that as if we've been given a fatal diagnosis. I've done hospice training and hospice work. That'll make shit real for you very quickly. When I was doing hospice visits with a friend who died uh, two years ago, um, at that point, uh, all of the things that I got irritated about that were of little import fell away. And the only thing that mattered to me were the pursuing the things, the relationships, the friendships, the obligations that made me feel deeply useful and connected with other people. When we don't have a reflection on our own mortality, we make stupid choices. Period. In the Buddhist practice, if we don't have work that connects us with death, and that's probably for most of us the case, because capitalism, to keep us busy and chasing after short-term pleasures, hides death from us, conceals it in nursing homes and in hospices and in... Uh, facilities where we don't actually see death. And so it makes it very easy to 
continually prioritize that which doesn't make us truly happy. The way in Buddhism we keep death in mind is the daily recollection. I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick and to die, to be separated from all that is dear to me. And all that I really own are the quality of my actions, the choices that I make, whether I act harmfully or whether I act compassionately. So if you want to keep those intentions to mind, just remind yourself you're going to die. It actually works. Finally, healthy behaviors can be associated with past rejections. Showing our art might be associated with times in life when peers ridiculed us. Exercise might be associated with times we were body shamed early on or were beaten up in a physical ed class. I think all of this happened to me, so I'm not just talking (laughs) theoretically. So when we try to take positive actions in this way, we will very often procrastinate because the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, will go, shit, I don't like the sound of this. The last time I tried to do any of this, it was painful. So it's important to slowly connect with that fear that prevents us from growth, to know how to connect with that underlying apprehensiveness that maybe if I try to grow towards my art or my spiritual life or my physical health, that I'll in some way be rejected or abandoned. Set small achievable goals. Reward yourself. Never use self-criticism ever. Ever. All you're doing when you use self-criticism when you try to set a goal or set an intention is you're associating that intention or that goal with criticism. And do we ever like to do anything that's associated with criticism? No, we don't. So simply reward yourself every time you even put the smallest amount of effort into something. Never, ever set hurdles. Always reward. Perform the tasks at the exact same time of day. Your brain has what's called a striatum. The striatum is the part that actually regulates habits and rituals. It takes about three weeks to neurally ingrain the circuit of a new habit. So if you do something at the same time in the same location for three weeks, guess what? You got a new circuit there. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're flossing your teeth when you never did before. (laughs) I hope that's not your intention. That just came out of my mouth. (laughs) So finally, a couple of notes and then we'll get onto the ceremony about the refuges we'll be taking. Uh... The first is we take refuge in the Buddha, and while I explain this, Kathy's going to be handing out some strings, and you're going to be encouraged to each take a string, and when we do the ceremony, you'll, well, I'll describe it, you'll tie three knots, which stand for the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dharma, and then you'll tie it around your wrist, or get your neighbor to help you do that. So, passing this along... Each taking a string, there's a lot of strings. 
So the first knot will be taking refuge in the Buddha, and that doesn't mean you become a Buddhist, or though you, you can if you want. The Buddha simply means to awake, to be awoken, which means to get out of the delusion that there's something missing, that I'm incomplete, that there's something broken about me, that there's something I need to accumulate, acquire, or achieve before I can relax and develop peace and ease in my life. When we let go of that craving that keeps us hunting <coughs> for approval, that keeps us chasing after short-term pleasures, we actually begin to open to that third quality of life that we're so often unaware of, the internal landscape, the inner body, the feelings, the emotions that convey the central messages of the right hemisphere, that convey to us how important human connection, empathy, love is for us. We begin to find refuge within through spiritual practice. And we find that simply through addressing the breath, the way we hold the body, simply those simple and overlooked practices can bring us so much unconditional ease in life. And that rather than needing to chase happiness externally, we can find it simply by how we engage the body. The second is taking refuge in the Dharma. So much of our lives is spent trying to figure out what it's all about, what it all means. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? And one, I should note that all meaning and all understanding is collaborative. It's not something that we can ever develop on our own. Meaning is something that takes time after a painful event or a joyous event. It's something that's felt first and then the emotions are disclosed and then there's a sense of understanding why an event happened and what we need to learn from it. But even more so, the Dharma encourages us to put aside the need to cognitively uncover the gist of it all or what the big message is is because so much of the heavy lifting was done 2,500 years ago by people that lived in northern India. The Buddha said that you don't need to know all of the... He said if you look at the, the leaves in the forest, some people try to understand life by knowing all the facts and theories and concepts that there are available. But he said, there's only a few we need to know. And we can put aside that ever cognitive churning and instead embrace life. The first truth is that shit happens. Not only old age sickness, death, and loss, but difficult emotions. Sadness, loneliness, grief, despair, illness, physical pain, the loss of the loved, the 
being stuck with the less than lovable for us setbacks and inconveniences. The second noble truth is that when we try to avoid or suppress or run from or deny the painful experiences instead of opening to them and embracing the emotions just as we embrace the feel-good emotions, then we experience more suffering in our lives. Trying to avoid, deny, repress doesn't make us happy. It leads us into ever-increasingly hollow addictions. The third noble truth is that there is a true peace that's available and it starts by relinquishing the conditional joys we chase after, the pleasures associated with people-pleasing, consuming, and so forth, and instead we take on the tasks of harmlessness and skillful connection with others. The fourth noble truth goes into the different ways through meditation, understanding, and harmlessness, and true connection with others. And lastly, we reach the third refuge and the real foundation of it all, which is connecting with wise spiritual friends, a community. Until we do that, we generally unconsciously pick people who reproduce the most painful episodes of childhood. It's just human nature, repetition, compulsion. And when we do that, we fall into the same old coping strategies, and we keep chasing love from people who can't give it, or acceptance from people who can't provide it. We keep going to the hardware store for orange juice, as they say. <laughs> To find true support in adult life is the hardest thing we ever do. Because all of the friendships we have up into adult life were given to us. By schools, by neighbors, by people who just happened to be at the bar. I'm speaking personally, that was my experience. Anyway... Friendships for the early point of life are assigned to us or just put in our path. And we just fall back on those early strategies of either avoidance or people-pleasing or uh, narcissistic attention-seeking or histrionic dramatization or whatever our strategy is to keep friendships. And eventually, hopefully, that fails. And we have to choose authentic friendships, which are people who will be there and listen without telling us what to do, no matter what our experience is, no matter what our emotional pain is, no matter what we are experiencing. And that, for me, is the most important of the refuges, and the, easily the most overlooked in adult life. It requires risk and vulnerability. Nobody in adult life likes being vulnerable, because we've all had that excruciating pain of trying to get 
attention. We are all, as human beings, attention-seeking missiles. And when we don't get it, when we feel rejected and shamed, it creates the greatest emotional pain that we experience in life. So to make true friendships requires effort. It requires continuously pushing ourselves against all of the underlying emotional beliefs that tells us that if I express this part of myself, I'll be rejected. But it's worth it. So now we're going to take the refuges, and then we're going to do the precepts, which is essentially not causing harm in our life. So I'm going to lead the refuge chant, and it simply means I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha, the community. The Buddha is in awakening, opening up to one's internal experience. The Dharma is the wisdom of collaboration and all the wisdom that spiritual paths have provided. So, this is a chant in ancient Pali. I'll say it. And then you will repeat it if you like. You don't have to. Buddhan saranam gachami. Buddhan saranam gachami. Dhamman saranam gachami. Dhamman saranam gachami. Sangan saranam gachami. You're in great voice. Dulcet tones, everyone. <laughs> so we do everything in threes in Buddhism, so this is going to be our second round. Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami. Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami. Dutyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. Dutyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. Dutyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. Dutyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. Tatyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. I take the precept to abstain from killing living beings. I take the precept to abstain from taking that which has not been freely offered. I take the precept to abstain from harmful sexual misconduct. To abstain from harmful 
sexual misconduct. I take the precept, I take the precept to abstain from harmful speech. To abstain from harmful speech. I take the precept. I take the precept to abstain from intoxication. To abstain from intoxication. And I now pronounce you wedded to the Dharma. Congratulations. Happy 2018. Thank you for coming.